week. And whoop, and if you're not familiar, you haven't been here, don't know what hermeneutics is, that's okay. It's actually the perfect week for you to come. Uh, it's the perfect week for you to be here because uh, we're really kind of getting into uh, the real meat of this idea tonight. And what I'd like to do is begin by taking you to Second Peter chapter 3. So if you could turn to Second Peter chapter 3 in your Bible. Um, these few verses I'm actually going to have on the screen for you. And we're going to look at them together because there's something here that we need to see as we uh, really get going tonight. Second Peter chapter 3. Begin in verse 15. All right, it says, And count the patience of our Lord Jesus as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Okay, so let's just, we're going to camp out kind of on what you see on the screen right there just for a moment. Okay, so you see a particular... Uh, two particular words underlined there, take care. And the reason for that is this, is because all this wording is kind of surrounding this idea. So if you look at it, you therefore, knowing this beforehand, knowing what beforehand? That when Paul writes, there are some things that are hard to understand. And in the other scriptures, there are some things that are hard to understand. And, and the unstable, they take these things and they twist them and they twist them in such a way to their own destruction. So you, knowing this beforehand, knowing that this is a reality beforehand, he's warning them. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. So there's something we're called to do here. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So this is, as I was talking about on Sunday, this is a verbal command. This is an imperative. This is saying, here's what you need to do. You, knowing this information, take care. Okay, so the word take care here, it might, it might help, because in the Greek it's one word. Um, the noun, this is a verb, right? The noun form of this is, is the word that's translated in our scriptures, prison. You might think that's weird, right? But this, is, this word here is in reference to a prison guard. In other words, take care means to guard this, to watch over this as a prison guard. You get the idea? Guard this. Guard what? Take care that you are not carried away. Who are we guarding? Ourselves. How are we to guard over ourselves, to watch over ourselves? What does this mean? It's, it's really simple, so I'm just going to break it down. Here's a couple of slides. So there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand. 
to that, we say? Yes, correct. That's right. Okay, next. There are some people who twist the meaning of the scriptures to their own destruction. Right? So, understand that in context of there being difficult things in scripture to understand. When a difficult idea comes about, I say, well, I'm not really going to put the work in to really dig in and figure out what that means. So here's what I think it means. Here's what it means to me. And so what you come up with is something that is twisted, something that is not correct. And so there's a call to us then. What's the call to us? Well, we don't want to be those people. We don't want to do that. What do we do? You keep watch over yourselves. You guard yourselves. How? Well, you keep watch over the way you interpret the scriptures. You don't want to be the one who is twisting the scriptures, correct? You don't want to be the one who is taking what is a difficult thing and, and I say, well, I think it means this, and you move on. A difficult thing normally takes effort, right? Doing something difficult, it takes care, it takes effort. You just easily move on. Something's wrong here. But the second thing is this, is to keep watch over the te- teaching that you accept yourself as biblical truth. Take care that you are not carried away by them, that you are not carried away with the things that they're telling you, that the things that they're saying, because the things they're saying are not right. There are many things that are said that are not right. And our job here, our call as believers, is to not be carried away. Keep watch over yourself. Guard yourself. We're talking about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a way that we guard ourselves in interpretation. But look at the last part there um, in, in, this, uh, in this text. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. And what's the last part it says? And lose your own stability. Why would we lose our own stability? Because of this, and this is what I told you last time. It all, it all comes around. Is that there are some things, in, uh, excuse me, what you believe impacts the way you live. And so if we're carried away by this incorrect, twisted teaching, it's going to impact the way you live your life. And we need to be careful that we are not led astray and our life impacted by absorbing into our lives false teaching, which masquerades itself as the best teaching you've ever heard, by the way. You know that. So what is hermeneutics? You should have this definition down. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. Is there a correct way to interpret Scripture and an incorrect way to interpret Scripture? Is every interpretation of Scripture the correct interpretation of Scripture? No. There is a correct way and there is a wrong way. I, I'm, I'm reiterating this is because we really need to understand that the way we read the Bible, sometimes we're going to encounter things that are difficult to grasp. Just because we have a book written by humans, but ultimately authored by God himself, 
And yes, it contains spiritual truth. And yes, you have the spirit of God in you. But what it does not mean is that you can flip open to any page and just all of a sudden have all the information you need to know to interpret that correctly without any help whatsoever or training or understanding. It's not true. There is a way to interpret things. And there are methods to interpretation. There are no less than five ways that people interpret the Bible. Four of them, I believe, are incorrect. Uh, So we're going to be looking at what has been understood historically in the evangelical world as the correct method of interpretation, which is the grammatical historical method of interpretation. Okay, so this is important. If you're taking notes, make sure this is this is a, a key here that you need to understand. You need to take a note of this: the grammatical historical method. What does that mean? It means we take into account the historical cultural setting along with grammar and syntax. And you might say, what you're saying here is a lot of words, and what you're saying here sounds like it requires a whole lot of work. Both of those things are true. You're right. It does take work. I agree with you. Interpreting the Bible is difficult business. But it doesn't mean it's out of the scope of your ability or your reach. It doesn't mean then you set your Bible down and you never read it. No, what it means is absorb what I'm telling you because I'm helping you to understand how to go home and interpret your Bible just properly, properly. I'm going to give you two examples tonight. This is going to be our whole time together. I'm going to give you two examples. Um, I may give you a list of principles. I'm not sure. We'll we'll see. But um, I'm going to give you two examples. Uh, so just two passages of scripture. And what I'm going to show you is, what does it mean that we take into account the historical cultural setting? What does that mean? That's going to be one example I'm going to give you. And the other example I'm going to give you tonight is, what does it mean that we take into account grammar and syntax? What does that mean? Okay, so the first example is this. It's Acts 2.39. And the point of this example is to show you how we take into account grammar and syntax. It's very simple. The idea is simple. We need to understand the words that were written. That's in its grammatical sense. We just need to understand the words that are on the page. Sometimes do you read something in English and say, I don't know what I'm reading here. It's not that the words, I don't know what the individual words mean. I just don't know what all the words together mean. What are you trying to say here? Or somebody says something out loud and you say, I hear all the words you're saying. I understand all the words you're saying, but I don't know what you're trying to tell me. Well, what we're doing when we read scripture is we're saying the words are here on purpose, the words are inspired by God, and they're communicating something to us, and so I want to understand the words that are here and just what it's trying to tell me. Right? It's simple. But what if we, 
what if, what if something goes off here? What, what if something happens? So let's look. I'm going to compare two translations of this one verse, and you see what I mean. Here's the New American Standard Bible on top and the ESV on the, on the bottom. Same verse, and it says, NASB. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Okay. ESV says, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Do you see the difference between these two translation? Acts 2.40? I said it was 2.39. Maybe it's 2.40. All right, so if you're in your ESV, it says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Okay, so do you see the difference in the two translations? The NASB says, be saved. Whereas the ESV says, save yourselves. So tell me, would these two things just on the surface mean totally different things? To be saved is different than to save yourself. Wouldn't you say? So which is it? Now, what if someone comes to you and says, they take the Bible that we read in church, ESV, and they say, look, I don't know if you've ever read this before, and they take you to Acts, I guess it's 2.40, not 2.39, and they say, listen to what it says here. Save yourselves from this crooked generation, and so that's the call to us. Save yourself! Save yourself! And to that we would say what? I can't save myself. So that's confusing, and then you go home and you think, I don't know how to take this, Right? In NASB, it says, be saved. You're like, oh, I like that better. Let's go with that one. Are we concerned primarily with what the English translation says? Because it's a translation of what? Of the original languages. So do you see why all of a sudden the study of the original languages becomes significant? It becomes important? The word here comes from the word sozo, which means to save. But it's, I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you without a, without a lot of uh, information here, okay? The word is in the aorist, which means a completed action in the past. It's also in the passive, though, which means it's something from the outside, something from the outside is acting upon you or it, right? It's not something you're doing. It's something that is from the outside acting upon you. But it's also in the imperative. It's a command. And it's in the second person, you. It's also in the plural, you all. What does all that tell me? That the ESV didn't translate this very well. What it really should say in a literal translation is you all save yourselves nor you all be saved excuse me you all be saved be saved all of you be saved so let's just pause for a second because what you're saying right now in your head is okay 
so what you're telling me is that in order to read my Bible and interpret it correctly, all of a sudden what you're telling me is I can't trust the English translation and I need to know Greek instead. Is that what you're telling me? Well, let me tell you all of the rest of these words, do you understand fine? Do you realize that I had to find an example for you? And that I couldn't just randomly pick any passage because most passages were not going to have quite an issue like this. But do you see how when we're formulating doctrine, when we're formulating theological beliefs, how an English translation is not quite suitable to the task? Is that we need to understand what the original languages are saying so that we can properly, properly formulate theology. Does that make sense? So what you might be saying right now in this, in this moment, though, is that that seems difficult. And again, I will say, you are right. That is difficult. At its deepest level, biblical translation and interpretation is incredibly difficult. But yet... Most of us in this, in, in this room, I have to say most of us because David's in here, most of us in this room were not called to be Bible scholars. Correct? Right. That's right. But are you called to read the Word of God? And are you called to understand that Word within the context of your local church? And who is there in your local church? Teachers. Teachers. Right? So, why would we, just think about it, why would we need teachers in the church if we all equally to the task are to the same scale as interpreters? Why did God need to put teachers in place? You following what I'm saying? But here's also what I'm saying. Yes, there is a side to Bible interpretation that is technical. There is. But when you reach something that you say, I am not getting this at all, seems to be a contradiction here, you have people to ask, for help. This is where some things have gone a little astray in our culture because normally, and I encounter this, is that when people have questions about the Bible, they immediately go to Google rather than to the elders of their church. Google is not responsible for the care of your soul. Google is not your shepherd. John MacArthur is not responsible for the care of your soul or whoever else you want to name. But there are people that God has put in place over your life that are to care for you and are to be teachers to you and you should seek them out and seek out their counsel. Okay. That to say, yes, there are areas or times when we read the Bible and it's difficult to understand what's being said. True. There are the theological matters that are difficult for us to grasp. 
right? Like God is always working all things out for our good. I get that, but I have a hard time grasping that concept. It's difficult for me to understand that. And when you go through a difficult time, you need a different kind of counsel. I don't need you to help me grasp this intellectually, right? I get, I get what it means, but I'm spiritually having a hard time grasping the concept. That's a different, that's a different kind, isn't it? When you read your Bible, for the most part, here's what you're going to see, is that the English translations have done an incredible job at helping us understand what the Bible is saying. They've done, it's done an incredible job at helping us to understand in plain language what the Bible is saying. But when you come across issues such as this, you are not without help because you are part of a church that has elders as the Bible has instructed us. You get what I'm saying? I led you down a rabbit hole that you didn't think we were going to get out of, did you? But what I'm saying is that you can read your Bible. Another thing you can do, by the way, is do exactly what I've done, is compare translations. Have you ever done that? If you read something that's difficult for you to grasp, but just at a, just at a plain reading, try reading a different translation. Read maybe. So, some, so one of them might help you in your mind better grasp the concept. Not all translations are equal, but many translations are very good. The NIV is okay to go to to say, what is the idea here grammatically? The NIV helps with that, right? Okay. That's the idea in that, and just one more example here. So this is what we mean generally by grammar and syntax. We're talking about the words. What does it mean? What do the words mean? Okay, we need to know what the words mean in order to interpret properly. But just because we understand what the words mean doesn't mean we can properly interpret the passage because we're missing something potentially, which is historical cultural context. So I'm going to give you the classic example of a passage of scripture that we would otherwise not be able to interpret unless we had historical cultural context. Okay, and it comes from Revelation chapter 3 verses 15 through 18. I'm going to read it for you. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments that may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now we might think, well, this is all just very figurative language. I mean, I get the idea here. Hot, cold, classically, how is that understood? Hot on fire for the Lord, or cold, completely turned off from the Lord. He wants you to be at one extreme or the other. He wants you to either be all in or all out. And that is just flat out wrong. That's not right. That's incorrect. That's wrong interpretation. So, but the reason that you would get to that interpretation is because you had no idea about the historical cultural context. The historical con- cultural context Im- influences these, the, the, the interpretation of these few words here, lukewarm, poor, blind, and naked, all have historical context for that church. And so what does this mean? Well, in this context, there were two churches, uh, or two cities, I should say, uh, Colossae, 
and Heriopolis. And they were kind of here and here. And Laodicea was kind of in the middle. Now, Laodicea had a problem. It didn't have its own water source, so it had to have water piped in from these other two cities. And in Colossae, they had hot springs. The water was hot. And in Heriopolis, they had cold springs, and the water was cold. But either way, when the water was piped in, what was its temperature when it reached them? It was lukewarm. And it was, it was uh, lukewarm, and it had calcium deposits, and it tasted gross. And so what would you want to do with that water? Spit it out of your mouth. You hate your water, Laodicea, because it's useless to you. It's gross. You want to spit it out of your mouth, and that's what you have become to me. I wish that you were either cold, that's good water, or hot, that's good water, useful. But you are lukewarm, not useful to me, disgusting. Get the, get the idea? But it doesn't even stop there. It says, you are poor, blind, and naked. What does that mean? Well, again, this has context. It says they are poor, but they, this city, boasted about being rich. In fact, they had an earthquake, and Jerusalem offered to give them some money to help them to pay for their restoration. They said, no thanks, we're good. We can pay for this ourselves. They had pride about how much money they had. So they were very well off. They called themselves rich. They were blind. They had a temple there where people would travel from all over the known world to come there and buy something. You know what they would buy? Salve to anoint their eyes, to make them see better. And so what this is saying is people travel all over to Laodicea to be able to see, but you yourselves are blind spiritually. And naked. Now the whole city, they had black wool that they would sell. And so they were famous for selling black wool and people would come there to be clothed while they themselves were naked and should be ashamed. And this is how we can properly interpret what is being said to the church in Laodicea. You understand? Now, without these particular cultural, historical context, how can we understand what's being said? Just reading, I think we can sometimes get the gist, right? And you can. You can tell that the church is in trouble, right? You can get that much. They're in trouble by God for something, and he's not happy with them. I get that. But in order to really interpret exactly what's being said to them, we have to take it to another level, don't we? And so we have to not only understand the grammar, the words being used, we need to also understand the historical, cultural context, the setting in which these things occurred. Does that make sense? Okay, if we ignore the fact that this was written in history, in a culture unlike our own, we ignore what God was saying to that people because he didn't write the text to us 2021. He wrote it to them, right? In real time, in real history, in a real culture, at a real place, real people in real circumstances were the original recipients. Understand? And so we need to, in a sense, take ourselves and transport ourselves back in time so as to see the world the way they saw it and understand what's being said. Yes, this work is involved in biblical interpretation. But what I'm saying to you is, if you don't have all this, does it mean you can't read your Bible? 
No, it, that's, of course that's not what it means. But in order to be a better student of your Bible so as to be careful and guard yourself so as to not be led astray, do we need to put some extra work into biblical interpretation? People often ask me, what's the next step I need to take in reading my Bible other than just reading it? And there are two things I tell them that they should get. The two things I tell them that they should get is number one, a study Bible. And the second thing I tell them they should get is a Bible dictionary. A study Bible and a Bible dictionary. A study Bible is gonna have notes on each passage and a lot of times if there is pertinent cultural, historical information, it will tell you what that is. Pertinent, like it's necessary to understand, okay? And it will also help you if there's difficult wording many times. A Bible dictionary will help you on a whole nother level. A Bible dictionary, you read about a city and you say, I've never heard about that city before. I don't know where that is, but something bad's about to happen from that city. How far away is that city? What's going on in that city? What kind of people live in that city? Well, you look for that city in your Bible dictionary, it will tell you all about it. And it will help you to better understand what you're reading. Okay? So if you don't have one, I want to recommend that you get the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It's a great Bible dictionary. I've used several. That one's my favorite. Okay? Now, before we end, I'm going to just put some... I'm not even really going to go into what they mean, but I'm at least going to list them tonight. Some principles for biblical uh, interpretation or some basic hermeneutical principles. These are basic hermeneutical principles. I want to give you something to walk away with. The ones that I, I don't need to reinvent the wheel here. So these principles are not my original material. I've taken them from, uh, everybody, by the way, has their own principles for biblical interpretation. Hermeneutical principles. Some have five, some have ten, some have eight, some have seven, some have whatever. But these I found to be helpful. Okay? Um, okay, so here are, the, here are the seven. Number one, we follow the literal principle, meaning that the Bible was written in order, ordinary language meant to be understood. It, it says what it says. Okay? It's not cryptic. There's not a code you have to break. Right? like the Da Vinci Code, you know, those kind of codes. There's no code. Number two, the contextual principle. Um, simple way of understanding this is that every text has a context. There is a context, whether it be a grammatical context or a historical context. There is context somewhere. It has context. That's a good one to walk away with, right? Number three. The one meaning principle. Understand this one. The one meaning principle means there is only one meaning. The Bible, in any given passage or concept, it only has one meaning. To ask what does it mean to you is a false question. It's, it's based on false assumptions that the Bible has more than one meaning. That any given passage, it means one thing. It means one thing and not many. But what do we mean when we say, what does it mean to you? I think what we often mean is, how does this truth apply to you? And that could go on forever, right? The way a text applies to me, we can have, I can read one text and it mean one thing and it apply to everybody in the room differently. Right? But it's the same truth, but there's only one meaning. 
Okay, number four, the exegetical, exegetical principle. Meaning, this is a really basic one. You draw meaning out of a text rather than putting meaning onto a text. You ever heard a sermon where they're saying something, saying something, saying something, and all of a sudden they pick a verse over here and they say, see, the Bible says this. What they're doing is they're saying, I came up with an idea and I'm looking for any verse in the Bible that might possibly, potentially say something like this and they pick it out out of context and they tell you that's what it means. That's not exegetical, that's what's called eisegetical, meaning they're placing meaning onto the text rather than pulling meaning out of a text. Okay? It's best to approach any given text as if you don't know what it's going to say because if you come thinking you already know what it says, what are you doing? You're placing your own meaning on the text before you've read it. So approach scripture with an open mind. What is the scripture telling me? Rather than saying, I already know what this says, I've read it 10,000 times. Or do you? Or do you know what it says? Okay, next, uh, the linguistic principle. The linguistic principle is simple. We've already covered it in my, in my illustrations, in my examples, I mean, um, that the original languages take precedence over English translations. The original languages take precedent over English translations. Next, the progressive principle. Progressive principle is, is again, simple. It's just progressive revelation in that God didn't reveal himself all at once, all at one time right? In other words, what we read in Genesis, we can build upon that by reading, for example, in Hebrews or in Colossians chapter 1. You see, in Genesis 1, it talks about how God created the earth and the universe, right? But Colossians 1 leads us into a deeper understanding of that truth by saying in what way this was done through Jesus Christ. And for what reason? For him. You see, so what was given to us in Revelation in Colossians 1 builds on a truth that was given to us in Genesis 1. Does that make sense? So the way in which the Bible is revealing who God is is progressive throughout time. God didn't give this all at once. Even the Old Testament was not given all at once, right? Okay. And finally, number seven. These were easy. Number seven, the harmony principle. It's okay to have a pre-understanding. Of the fact that the Bible harmonizes with itself. When you go to read the Bible, understand the Bible is going to harmonize with itself. But you might say, but is that true? Because if you tell me it's true and then I'm going to believe it and I start reading it, but I think that it doesn't, right. I understand what you're saying, but we can approach the scriptures knowing this, that if it is God's word, it's not going to contradict itself. And so therefore, when we read passages that seem like they don't, it doesn't fit with, the New Testament doesn't seem to fit with this part of the Old Testament, I promise it does. I promise it does. But just because of your initial reading this, and you've spent five minutes reading it, Five minutes on a Google search and it still doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. It's okay that I'm having trouble here, but what we do need to say is this, is that you, you need to have faith that the word of God is harmonizes with itself 
even if you can't quite see it yet. That's okay. Again, in those particular areas where you're having trouble, you have people to help you with that. And I want you to use, I, I, I want to plead with you to use your church as a resource before you use Google as a resource. Okay? Um, because, why? We need to take care that difficult passages are not twisted and that we simply read an article that sounds good to us, sounded good to me, sounded like a good explanation to me. Just because something sounds good to us doesn't mean that we should accept it because it may potentially lead us into ruin and change our behavior because we believe something false. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm going to stop. As Jim Dean's birthday present, I'm going to end even though I have more notes. Okay? So... Uh, we're going to end tonight, and uh, we're, I'm going to uh, pray, and uh, we're going to have a little party, okay? All right, let's all pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, and uh, tonight I pray that people are walking away understanding that the Bible that you have given to us, yes, is, is rich, and, and what it should do is it should draw us in to your word. We want to know more of it. We want to understand it. We want to comprehend. And Lord, without your spirit, we cannot properly take, take these spiritual truths and apply them to our lives and, so that we're changed. And so we need your spirit's help, guidance, illumination of our hearts and our minds to comprehend and understand. Not only that, but to have faith that what the Bible is saying is true. And so I pray for our church that you would protect us, that you would lead us, guide us into understanding, that you would help us as a church to grow, hold one another accountable to biblical truth. God, because we trust in your word. We want to know more of it. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for Jim Dean. We thank you that you have brought him here to us and that we get to enjoy his friendship. We pray that you would continue to bless him and his life. We pray that you would uh, let us have a great time tonight in celebration. We ask in Jesus' name together. Amen.